all that was just read. Massive, isn't it? I said to uh, Chad, uh, well, you know, uh, Isaiah 40 really demands more than a month of sermons, but I have one week, so we'll see how we go. Now, just before I start, I just thought I'd mention that the name for God, when we read Lord in capital letters there, that name is actually translated, it's just Yahweh, actually. In the original Hebrew, that was the name of Israel's God, Yahweh, which gets translated in capital letters for Lord. Now, why I'm pointing it out now, and I'll actually read it sometimes as Yahweh, we'll see the importance of that as we go through Isaiah 40. So just keep that in mind. But before I start, I'll put this in, and we'll pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you uh, that we can come here this morning uh, to hear your word. We thank you that you are not a silent God, that you are an awesome God, as we've just read. And we pray that now our hearts and minds will be open to being encouraged and challenged by what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are continuing through this uh, series in Isaiah. And as we've looked through the book, we've been wondering what this book of Isaiah about a prophet who delivered messages to ancient kings, cities and countries have to do with our world today. We have so many global issues such as environmental issues, issues in society, mental health issues, wars, etc. The list could go on and we heard a lot last week. And we've been looking at what does his message have to do with us today. And as we've gone through, we've been seeing lots of answers and we'll continue to see more answers in today's passage. And today we come to a key passage in the book, Isaiah chapter 40, particularly verses 1 and 2, which is a key passage because this is the hinge of the book. This is the section of the book that opens up the doorway to the second half of the book. But as the hinge, it is important to see how this passage connects what comes before in chapters 1 to 39 and what comes after. So to do that, I'm actually going to briefly mention a few critical points from chapters 1 to 39 that are relevant to help us really appreciate what is being said here in chapter 40, especially verses 1 and 2. So remember that Isaiah's great vision of God came to him in the temple in the year King Uzziah died. And Yahweh called Isaiah to proclaim his message. It's a very famous passage where God asks, whom shall I send? And Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. It's a passage often used to inspire us, but what immediately follows is often forgotten. What Isaiah had just volunteered himself for was not an exciting nor a fun ministry. Quite the contrary. God was commissioning him to proclaim a message of judgment against his people. It was an ominous calling which not many people today would rush into. And Isaiah's initial response was, For how long, O Lord? Now, that's a pretty shrewd question. Now that he realises what he's got himself in for, he's wondering how long his contract is. How long do I have to keep announcing this judgment? And God's response in chapter 6 was, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord, that is, until Yahweh, has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. Note the picture here. Cities lying ruined and without inhabitant. People sent far away, and the land becoming utterly forsaken. It's an image that is hard for Australians to comprehend. 
We've never experienced anything like this. But I can imagine it a bit better than the average Australian. Bonnie and I first went to Cambodia in 1995. Now, remember in Cambodia, there was this horrific time of the killing fields where the Khmer Rouge ruled with terror for over three years and wiped out one-third of the population and the cities were emptied. When I went first to Cambodia in 1995, I found walking down the main drag of Phnom Penh, which is called Monivong Boulevard, one of the most eerie experiences I've ever had. The reason it was so eerie was because I'd seen in history books black and white photos of Monivong Boulevard in Phnom Penh where there was not a single person on it. It was emptied. The city was emptied. There was a photo of Monivong Boulevard with, with buildings looking pretty much like they do today. So it looked exactly like when I was standing there, but with not a single soul. I think that photo of Monivong Boulevard is the most haunting photo that I've ever seen. A photo with no human face on it at all. The centre street, the main drag of a busy, bustling capital city where I was standing, empty, just 20 years earlier. Not a living soul. So as I walk down Monivong Boulevard in 1995, in real life, I see lots of people again, bustling about. But at the same time in my mind, I'm picturing this photo. And I was thinking to myself, if I was in this exact spot just 20 years earlier, I would have been seeing one of the most bizarre and cruel social experiments in human history as people were forced from the city. It was a horrific time. But of course, it was not the only time that events like that have happened in human history. There's a lot of similarity between what happened to Phnom Penh and what happened to Jerusalem in the years 587 and 586 BC. Jerusalem was also a buzzing, busy capital city and Jerusalem suffered the same fate. The city fell under siege by the Babylonians. It lost and the majority of people were taken far away as captives. Yet, even though there are a number of similarities, there are, of course, quite a number of differences. Jerusalem held the honour of being God's chosen city with a temple that represented God's presence and holy name. No other city, including Phnom Penh, ever had that honour. The people of Jerusalem are part of God's special chosen covenant people where God was revealing his plans. And these differences lead to another very key difference between what happened to Jerusalem and what happened to Phnom Penh. That is the scriptural, specific, prophetic utterance of why. Sometimes it is asked, why did the Khmer Rouge happen? Why did Phnom Penh fall and everybody get kicked out? Why? It's a question that people sometimes don't like asking in Cambodia. I was reading a Year 12 textbook uh, for Cambodians, for my language study, and in it there was a character saying, don't ask these questions, don't ask why, don't ask why there's evil in the world, don't ask why the Khmer Rouge happened. And I told my language helper, one reason people don't ask, like asking the question why is because they don't have the answer. They do not have a definitive explanation, therefore they just don't know why. And this, of course, is completely the opposite of what happened to Jerusalem. As Israel was God's chosen special people, he was working out his special plans and he wanted them to know exactly why. So he gave them a definitive, clear answer as to why. In fact, so much did he want them to know the answer to the question why that he told them why it happened even before it happened. 
So why did it happen? So listen to a couple of explanations here. There are a lot more, but I'll just pick out a couple. In Isaiah 1, see how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all are bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore the Lord, Yahweh Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, "Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. Then in the famous Song of the Vineyard in chapter 5, we read God's message of doom in verses 5 and 6. And notice my emphasis as I read it. Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. Although with their eyes the people of Jerusalem could see their enemies, the Babylonians, approaching and laying siege to their city with their siege works, in chapter 29, God tells them who it really was that laid siege to them with their siege towers. So we read, Woe to the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will besiege you. I will encamp against you all around. I will encircle you with my towers and set up my siege works against you. It's an astonishing announcement telling his people that when those siege works come up against the city, Jerusalem, those siege works did not really ultimately belong to Babylon, but to Yahweh, their covenant God. Nevertheless, when Jerusalem was faced with this oncoming might of their enemies, rather than looking to God to save them, they put their hope in an alliance with Egypt. Yet God announced the folly and sin of such a strategy and hope. In chapter 31, he proclaims, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from Yahweh. Yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against the house of the wicked, against those who help evildoers. But the Egyptians are men and not God, their horses are flesh and not spirit. When Yahweh stretches out his hand, he who helps will stumble. He who is helped will fall. Both will perish together. Now this highlights a key and central issue and theme in the book of Isaiah, which was Israel's lack of faith. Ironically, one of the key verses in the book chapter 36 verse 5 highlights this theme through a question that is put forward to the people of Jerusalem by their foreign invaders Assyria at that time when they asked them on whom are you depending they did not place their trust in Yahweh their covenant God who was king of kings ruler over all but they placed their faith in alliances with foreign kings however of course despite the fact that Yahweh was the one who was sovereignly bringing his judgment on his people, we should not think for a moment that God delighted in this situation. For even he announced in chapter 22, 
verses 4 to 5. Turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. Now, I've continued to highlight the words, I will, to emphasise a simple point that is often easily overlooked. When God warns them of the coming destruction, he's not just telling them the plain facts of the future, you will be destroyed. He's not even merely warning them, you will be destroyed. He is doing much more than that. He is telling them these future events and he's interpreting these future events for them. That is, he's telling them why it will happen. That is the whole point of the message. He does not want them to simply know what is going to happen. He wants them to know with 100% certainty and clarity he did it. So when we read these verses, I ask people what they teach us about God. Often the better answers I get are, oh, well, it teaches us about God's sovereign judgment on his people. Of course, that's true. However, people often miss this fundamental point I'm telling you now. These passages don't only tell us about God's sovereign judgment on his people, but more than that, they teach us that God wants his people to know it. He wants them to know these truths. This is why he's telling them. This is why it's in the Bible. These truths are not just something that to be just in theology books considered abstract and impractical. No, God wanted his people to know it. They were not to die wondering. His will was not that they'll die wondering, they will die knowing. They will go into exile knowing. They'll be subject to foreigners knowing. And God wanted his, know, his people to know why for many practical reasons which are foundational for Isaiah 40. So having explained why it did happen, God was not leaving any room to the imagination for the people of Jerusalem for the cause of their fall. Because imagine what they could think. Imagine if they didn't have this prophetic explanation of why, being a person in Jerusalem, what could they think? They could think, well, you know, it happened because, well, Babylon is bigger and stronger than us. They have a bigger army. Plain and simple. That would be the natural thing to think when you're living by sight and not by faith through the word of God. Therefore, you see, it happened because Yahweh, who is our God, is not sovereignly in control. There are other powers that are stronger than him, such as Babylon, for instance. So what is happening is actually beyond his control. He, he let it happen because he's not really sovereign. That much is obvious because we prayed to God and he didn't answer our prayers. But God had already warned them in Isaiah 1. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hand in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Another interpretation they could give is, oh, well, the gods of Babylon, Marduk. Marduk was the name of the chief god of Babylon, and they had many other gods as well. So Marduk and those gods, they're stronger than our god, Yahweh. After all, the Babylonians have many gods. We have only one. It's not a fair fight. Many against one. Now, I'm not joking. When you study history in the history of religion and worldview, this is how they thought. Each nation has its own god or gods, and which god or gods 
is stronger or which god or gods is the true god is evidenced by who wins the battles so i'm not joking this is how they could have interpreted it and god is making it very clear to them do not interpret it in that way now there are a host of other ways that could have interpreted the event However, God's clear explanation given before it even happened leaves no room for such interpretations. God says, I did it and I and no other. And I did it because you broke covenant. You rebelled against me. And so this whole section of the book ends in chapter 39, the preface to chapter 40, where Isaiah predicts that Judah will go into exile. Now, as I said, this is foundational for understanding what we read in chapter 40. There is a strong relationship between chapters 1 to 39 and then chapter 40 and then the rest of the book. They fit together like hand and glove, not just historically, but also theologically. So it came to pass, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians and many, many were taken captive to Babylon. And chapter 40 now jumps forward and to that time. And now we read a message from the following chapters as well that is proclaiming a message to these people. These people have experienced all these judgments. And so chapter 40 begins with the famous words which we've already read. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. So we saw in chapter 6 that Isaiah's commissioning was he was to proclaim a message of judgment until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left destroyed and the fields ruined and ravaged. That is, when the nation has reaped the full consequences of its apostasy, the new message will come. And now it comes. And this passage has stirring commands comfort speak proclaim the recipients of course of course people of jerusalem however like i said not the jerusalem of isaiah's day but a jerusalem in the future who will have experienced all these judgments and even beyond that a message to all god's people which we'll see in the new testament so what was the comforting message well, firstly, it tells them they are still God's people. Comfort my people, says God. And notice this means that this message of comfort is specifically for God's people. And as Yahweh has announced that they are his people, by implication, of course, he is still their God, which is indeed stated, says your God. And moreover, the message of comfort is that the penalty for their sins has been paid that is the basic meaning of her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for that she has received from yahweh's hand double for all her sins the word sin has been paid for also appears in leviticus 26 meaning that uh, to accept the punishment for their iniquity the punishment of their iniquity has been accepted as satisfactory by God. The price is paid. God has spent his wrath against his people due to them because of their sin. But how is that possible? 
How can a few decades of exile pay the price for generation after generation after generation of rebellion against Yahweh? Can the exile even pay for the sins of a few people who actually suffered the exile, let alone the sins of previous generations? The fact is, Isaiah 40 is opening up the rest of the book of Isaiah and it introduces a lot of themes that will be uh, expanded on in the following chapters. And we see that happening here. There is far more to this announcement of pardon than first meets the eye. There's a mystery that will not be fully explained until chapter 53, where we read of a suffering servant who will make the one true acceptable sacrifice for all. Of him, it is said, and note, this was first said to exiles, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. But for now, there is the simple yet majestically bold and comforting message, your sin is forgiven, your sin has been paid for, your hard labour is over. So the message of comfort tells them that their time of suffering is over. But is this true comfort? Or is this just hollow words? Answering that question is how we see what I went through in chapters 1 to 39 provide an indispensable foundation for this message of comfort. Because if they did not understand that all the suffering that they received was because of God's sovereign judgment then these words of comfort are highly ineffective. Why? Well, think about all those other interpretations I said they could give. If they thought that the suffering came from some other source, some other reason which I mentioned before, they may respond to this message, Ha! So, Yahweh, you want to comfort us. You want to say it's all over. So what? What does it matter what you say? These strong armies that attacked us and wasted us, they are the real problem. If we heard their king say that it's all over, that he will not attack us or oppress us anymore, that he will let us go home and leave us in peace, now that would be a comforting message. Or if they thought thought that Marduk, the chief god of Babylon, was really lord and really the one in control, then they would think, So what if our little puny god Yahweh likes to say that our hard time is over? It wasn't his doing in the first place. It was Marduk. He's the one in control. He's the strong one. If he tells us that our time is over, now that would be a comforting message. It's only by accepting the reality of God's wrath against sin that accepting his message of comfort from forgiveness make any sense so it would take faith for this message to be truly comforting I don't mean a blind or wishful faith I mean a faith that enables one to see reality as it really is faith to see the truth the true reality that the foreign kings or armies or gods are not the ones in control but Jerusalem's God Yahweh who is king of kings And related to this, it takes a faith willing to admit that rather than their suffering being a result of God failing them, it was a result of them failing God. And this understanding that their suffering was a result of their failure and not God's failure 
will also ensure that they have the right attitude to this message of comfort as well. Because the message is not that God is trying to make it up to his people because he let them down, not that he's somehow obliged to repay them for all their unjust suffering, but rather that this restoration is purely as a result of God's immeasurable mercy and faithfulness. It takes faith for this message to be comforting. But to have such faith will be a turnaround from chapters 1 to 39. For as we saw, a key theme was that they lacked faith. So when they have faith to accept these truths from chapters 1 to 39, then this message of comfort can truly comfort them. Because they acknowledge that all their suffering was indeed at the hands of Yahweh, this message of comfort which comes from Yahweh is not hollow promises to their ears, but real comfort. And so God proclaims many truths through Isaiah 40 in this passage to help them have faith in this message of comfort, this message of forgiveness, salvation and restoration. And so what we read everything after is to stir up their faith. So in verses 3 and 4, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain. Sound familiar? Just as the beginning of the second half of Isaiah comes with a voice to to prepare a way for God to come to bring salvation, so the second half of the Bible, the New Testament, opens with John the Baptist quoting this passage to prepare the way for Jesus, the ultimate saviour. Let every heart prepare him room. So the call is made to prepare the way for the Lord to come. And will he come? Yes, he will, verses 9 and 10. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him. Now, does that sound like a God who has lost control? Does that sound like that Babylon or the Babylonian gods are more powerful than him? Of course not. And if they haven't got the message yet, then surely verses 15 to 17 will hammer home the message. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. So the nations, even the mighty Babylon, are nothing before him. And the gods of the nations, Marduk and all the other gods, they're nothing as well. Verses 18 to 20. To whom then will you can compare God? With what image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. The gods of the nations are man-made idols. They do not compare with the true God. God is saying, how can you compare me with these gods of the nations, with the idols? 
He doesn't compare. He only contrasts the idols are created, created by mere humans. The true God of Israel, Yahweh, is the creator. Verses 21 to 24. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Hasn't it been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He, that is Yahweh, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows in them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Now think of that in context. Surely such a message to them will stir faith. They can say, yes, the trouble that we had was at the hands of our sovereign God, the creator, God's sovereign judgment on our sin. But now, praise God, this situation will be different. How do we know? Because God himself has told us. He is the one in control. He did it and he has spent his wrath against us. Enough is enough. It is finished. Our sin has been paid for. We have received from Yahweh's hand double for all our sins. It is finished. But of course, we understand all that in order to understand God's message to us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. To understand that the problems in this world, in our lives, and that our greatest problem is that we've rebelled against God, that we are under his judgment, that the wrath of God is being revealed against the wickedness of the world, to understand that God is completely and sovereignly in control and as it's his doing, it's his ability alone that can save us. It's not only foundational, it's absolutely essential for properly understanding the gospel. For if we deny these truths, then the gospel has lost its real meaning. The good news becomes hollow good news. The words of comfort which God speaks to us in the gospel becomes empty words. Okay, God, so you forgive us. But since when was your wrath against our sin the biggest issue anyway? Since when was that the world's problems? What wrath? What plan to subject us to decay? There are so many other bigger issues in the world. They're our real problems. You don't seem to be in control. What a message of comfort from the Messiah's atonement. What does that have to say about our bigger problems? How is the gospel an answer to that? What hope do we have for this world? Yet the new Adam, Christ, is the answer to all the problems that stemmed from the first Adam. The curse has been reversed. The price has been paid. It is finished. It is often said that the book of Isaiah is a microcosm of the message of the Bible. It's the Bible wrapped up in one book, and we've been seeing that in this series. And the opening of Isaiah tells us that this book is a message concerning Jerusalem. And it moves from Jerusalem to New Jerusalem. However, the pivotal, indispensable point in this transition from Jerusalem to New Jerusalem is this proclamation that we've looked at, that Jerusalem's sin has been paid for. It is finished. 
However, here is the beauty of the book. The book of Isaiah simultaneously looks beyond just merely Jerusalem. It has a cosmic vision from creation to new creation, new heavens and new earth. But again, in the book of Isaiah, pivotal to that transition from creation to new creation is the work of the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities and cries out, it is finished. And so we await that final day. We await that final day for the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth, however you want to word it and however you think it will pan out. We await that day when there will be no more pain and suffering, no more death, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And this waiting for that future that we will inherit then lifts us in the here and now. And this is what the point of Isaiah 40 was. This is what the message was for Isaiah 40 as well. It was to give hope to them, to the people in exile. For this message to the exiles that restoration was going to come, but they still had to wait for it. Yes, there was a stirring message, a voice of one calling, in the desert prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. But they're still looking over the horizon, waiting for God to come mightily on this super highway to deliver them and to restore Jerusalem. And while they're kind of like standing there like on tippy toes, looking over the horizon, waiting for God to come and show up in power to save and to restore, what are they supposed to do? Just complain? Oh, God hasn't come yet. Just mope about about their current lot in life? No. The chapter ends with the famous stirring passage. Quite famous, but often not understood in context. So just think about what everything I've said so far and imagine being one of those exiles. You've heard this message of comfort. You've heard this message of restoration. You've heard God's God's going to come with power and you're looking over the horizon at the superhighway waiting for God to come with power, wondering if it will ever come about. And this message at the end of Isaiah 40 comes to you. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the, heavens of, of, uh, the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The word hope in the Lord here also is translated wait. Some translations will translate it wait. Those who wait for the Lord. So which is it? Hope or wait? Well, it's both. Hope in the Bible is waiting for something we don't yet have. Like Paul wrote in Romans 8, 24 and 25, for in this hope, talking about what we're waiting for, in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. 
Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The Christian life is a life of waiting, just as the exiles were. And the life that God was putting to his people in Isaiah 40 was a life of waiting, time of waiting. But notice at the end of Isaiah 40, what we just read, what waiting does for them. It doesn't cause them to complain, oh, God hasn't come yet, when's he going to come? It causes them to be lifted and to gain strength. But those who wait in the Lord will renew their strength. That is, in this context of Isaiah 40, and in the New Testament context as well, those who wait for God to fulfil what he has promised through his word, that is, those who wait eagerly for God to come to bring salvation and restoration, those people will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And the same is true for Christians today. Non-Christians do not have these eyes of faith. So many today are depressed when they look at the issues of the world today. They see future environmental catastrophe, overpopulation, corruption, societal breakdown and unrest, protests and wars, and they can't see past the problems. They have no solid justifiable hope for the future. Yet we have faith. Not a blind, wishful faith, but a faith that informs us to see reality as it really is. And we can tell the world, it's worse than you think. You don't know the half of it. <clears throat> we can tell them, some of you have hope in the goodness of humanity. That's a fool's errand. That's a dead end, that. This world is under the wrath of a sovereign God, yet our faith gives us real comfort and hope because that same God will come with power to restore. And we are waiting for that patiently. And we will soar. And we await it confidently because when we look back through history, we see that God kept his promise that he had delivered through his word to the Jews, and they were restored. Restored. They returned to Jerusalem. And God's track record through history, again and again and again, of keeping his word of promise, is an anchor to our soul. And we await it confidently because we know that the God who sovereignly judges and has sovereignly subjected this world to decay is the same God who speaks the only profound words that can bring true comfort. It is finished.